0: People cook for us, they wash up for us, you go into rooms and the towels are there, the bed is there, the TV is there, everything is there for us to use, all because we are paying money. And in fact, if you've got enough money, you can actually take some of the things away as a souvenir with you. <laughs> the items listed below for your convenience and comfort. Please contact reception if you would like to keep the items as souvenirs with the prices listed below. You've got this in your uh, television, 800 ringgit. <laughs> uh, Andrew, we got room in the car, right? Money is liquid power. But here's three very important questions, isn't it? How do we get the money? How much of it do we actually need? And thirdly, how do we actually use this liquid power? How do we get it? How much do we need? And how do we use this liquid power? For bow worshippers, especially the male variety, this picture actually sums up the answer to all three questions. There it is, it's a picture of uh, five very nice cars. I even worked out what they were, there's a Corvette, a Lamborghini, I don't know what the blue one in the middle is, there's the Porsche, and there's a Ferrari, and in the background is a great mansion with a Bell jet ranger helicopter, and a boat as well. And on the top it says, justification for higher education. That's the Asian dream, isn't it, at least for the men, isn't it? That's why people go to university. (coughs) For Asian women, of course, is to marry someone who's (laughs) going to give you all that, isn't it? Uh, Researchers have shown that university graduates earn four times as much in their lifetime, on average, than non-university graduates. However, if you and I are smart, we know that even as a university graduate, you're not going to get that. In fact, the only people who get that are those who are in business, isn't it? Who make it for themselves. As you're a university graduate, you might become an accountant for someone like that. <laughs> um, but that is the whole trajectory of their life. That's what our world is running after. That's what they want to get, how they get this liquid power, this is what they think they need, this is how they use their liquid power. How do we as worshippers, not of thou, but of Yahweh, of Jesus, how do we answer these three questions? How do we get the liquid power? How do we use it? How much of it do we need? We have a different trajectory in life, a different big picture of life, and not that one. Hebrews chapter 11, where I asked you to turn to, here's a few scattering of verses. The whole book of Hebrews is about this big picture And the big picture is you have left Egypt, you have left slavery. And God is taking you to the promised land, not of Canaan, but of heaven itself. And you're en route there. These are a few snippets of the the heroes of faith from the Old Testament. Pick it up from chapter 11 and verse 9. By faith, he, that is Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, in a foreign land. But notice when he was in the promised land, he lived in tents. He wasn't in a big mansion or anything like that, he was in tents. With his sons and Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So even they in the end, Abraham didn't inherit the land, he just wandered around in tents. And it shows that he was really looking forward to a better land, more than a physical country. The designer, the architect of which is God himself. Or chapter 11 verse 13. Speaking of some of the other uh, patriarchs, the other men of faith, these all died in faith. Chapter 11 verse 13. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. God had promised them, but they really didn't receive the promise yet. It was still in the future. Verse 14, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have that opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city, heavenly city. That's what even the Old Testament heroes look forward to. No wonder the New Testament Christians, to which the Hebrew writer writes, they are people who also look forward to this heavenly homeland. So, pick it up. Go back to chapter chapter ten and verse thirty-four, ten thirty-four. He writes to these first century Christians, 10.34. For you had compassion on those in prison, most likely others who'd been in prison for the sake of the Gospel. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Funny verse, isn't that? You rejoiced when they took your stuff, forcibly confiscated your stuff. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had better possessions and an abiding one. They take your things. It's like, uh, when you got insurance, you know, uh, if people take your things, then you get, uh, old, you get a new one for the old one, you know? And so they, you know, they take your TV and say, oh, well, I can get a new one. And they take your new one again. Oh, that's good. I can upgrade again and get another one and another one. And that is, you don't mind losing the stuff now because you've got something better to look forward to. Well, not a big TV, but heaven itself, something... Well, this is the promise you have and you cannot lose. So you don't mind the confiscation of your stuff that you have here. Or, in chapter 12 and verse 28, he speaks of a big shaking, a big earthquake. An earthquake where verse 27, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made. There's going to be this big earthquake in the end in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus offer to God acceptable worship. There's our eternal life, our inheritance in the future, that's going to stand, the final shaking, the final judgment. And therefore, how are we to worship? Well, chapter 13 gives us a few hints, and a few hints about finances and money as well. And so chapter 13 and verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For it is he who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can man do to us? The most that they can do to us is take away our goods, take away our even our life, isn't it? But they cannot take away our eternal life. We are those who have a future. So the final verse here in Hebrews 13 and verse 14. For here, 13 14, we have no lasting city, but we seek a city that is to come. That is the big picture of the Christian life. We are actually looking forward to possessions in the future. That is where all the big money is, that's where all the big riches is. It's in heaven itself. We're only here for 70 years, 80 years of our life, and then that's it. If we save up everything, amass everything, and then we die, we just leave it all to the kids. And who knows whether they are wise or not wise. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes says, isn't it? Usually kids who grow up... We haven't spent all our life giving them everything. They don't appreciate it. And so, you know, they they just squander it. How do we know that we can actually make any lasting impact in this life even for our family? No, no, it's not this life. No, this is not where the treasure is. Here's the big picture. We're going to a different land. But what do we do then with... With money now, because you still need money to live on, is that Someone's got to pay the bills, and, you know, how do we look at this liquid power? How do we get it? How much of it do we need? How are we going to use it, given that this is the big picture of life? Well, point two, three, and four, and two, three, four, five, uh, is four S's, uh, a four money signs. Stipend, spending, saving, and... Uh, sharing and saving. And then I'll draw some conclusions. First one, stipend. This is a strange uh, heading. i explain more to you what a stipend is in a few moments' time. It's all about money coming in. It's about income. Christians are those who are to earn an income. It's a good and right thing. Now, the rest of the uh, verses uh, for the rest of the talk is on this little sheet that uh, has been kindly printed out for us, uh, two sides. And we'll start off with uh, that uh, first section on the left, which says, Stipend Income. Proverbs 10, verse 4. Lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. Chapter 12. He who works this land will have abundant food but he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. But obviously it's good as Christians, as God's people, to work, to earn a living, and even, hey, if you're diligent, you you get wealth. Nothing necessarily wrong with wealth per se. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You want a a verse about ambition, or here's a verse about ambition. Make it your ambition not to be ambitious, is how the J.B. Phillips version translates it. Uh, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Uh, Not to be dependent on people, Uh, so that you can actually uh, earn your own way. That's what. That's why we work. And so, Ephesians chapter four: uh, Don't steal. Work with your hands. Do something useful with your hands. And in Proverbs 13, uh, you, you work little by little. That's how you forget these get rich quick schemes. You gather money and you make it grow little by little. There is the income that we need to work for. But we've got to recognize that ultimately where we get our income from is From God Himself. Remember the Lord's Prayer: Uh, "Give us this day our daily bread." It's God who gives it to us. So similarly, in Matthew chapter six, God is the one who uh, feeds the birds of the air, etc. We are more valuable. God will look after us. Proverbs thirty is uh, I like this one. Two things I ask of you: Don't refuse me before I die. The first thing is, keep falsehood and lies far from me. The second one is what we're going to concentrate on. These are interesting prayers, isn't it? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Why? Well otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who's <laughs> the Lord? I don't need him. Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God interesting prayer, isn't it? Give me my daily bread. Give me what I need. Don't make me so poor that I'm tempted to steal. Don't make me so rich that I'm tempted to be so arrogant and proud that I don't need God. It is the giving of what we need is what we ask God for. Well then, what is the stipend? What is the definition of a stipend? Anglican ministers get a stipend. It's not technically a wage. It's not technically even a um, a salary. We are not paid by the hour. If you paid Andrew by the hour, you couldn't afford him. I don't think how the user works. <laughs> um, we're not paid by the hour. We're not even paid for projects completed. We are given a stipend. What is a stipend? A stipend is where we are paid so that we no longer need to be engaged in secular work, for want of a better word, secular work. We no longer need to be engaged in that. We are free from that so that we can actually devote our time full time into gospel ministry. We're given what we need to live on. That is a stipend. Some um, churches back in Australia, especially some of the Asian churches, um, the stipend is very low because they're still operating on the uh, theory that you keep the ministers um, poor and humble and that will be good. Um, But in Australia I'm given a sufficient stipend so that my wife does not have to work full time, I'm amply provided for and uh, I'm able to um, get on with the Business of preaching the gospel without worrying about money. Now, why am I talking about Star There was a friend of mine a couple of years ago, who was uh, thinking about full time ministry, and he had all the gifts to do full time ministry, but he also had a really good job in Australia, we called it a six-figure salary job. In other words, um, uh, you know, more than a hundred thousand dollars Australian. That's AUD, right? Australian dollars. At the moment, it's one point. Anyway, it buys you 108 cents US or something like that. The last time I heard, a lot, lot of money, right? He had a good job. And so he really didn't uh, want to give up this, this good, high-earning job uh, to do ministry, even though he, he thought you know, he, he really should. So he came up and he said to me, You know, Josh, how about this? How about I keep doing my job and go and get better positions and get paid even more, and I'll make lots of money, and I'll give it to full-time ministry. You know how many MTSs I can support, you know, how many trainees and apprentices I can support. I'll make lots of money and support people in mission and things like that. Now, how do you answer some, some offer like that? Well, a friend of mine, uh, Philip Jensen, who's uh, been around the traps as a minister for a bit longer, he, uh, he worked out how to answer such a question, and he told me, and then I then told this friend of mine, I said to this friend, okay, why don't you find out what the average minister earns, live on that, and then give the rest to missionary. Oh, that's what you said you're going to do, isn't it? You're going to earn lots of money so that you can give to mission. Well, if you're really uh, fair in the, say in Australia, you're really genuine about that, then why don't you find out what the average minister earns and then give the rest away. They so said, oh, Joshua, how much does the average minister earn? So then I sort of told him, you know, this and this and that. So if you work for a Chinese church in Australia, then it's a lot lower, and, and, and. So he thought about it. And, oh, really? Might as well do ministry then. <laughs> it sounds like a good reason, doesn't it? But sometimes, for some people, it's actually an excuse. An excuse for actually not giving up the great wealth and riches that we can have. But what if he did not do full-time ministry and actually found found out the average wage and, 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 and what he needed to live on and then gave the rest away? Would that have been a good way to operate? Well, remember Proverbs chapter 30. Give me my daily bread. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 8. The Apostle says, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Food, clothing, that's all the Apostle Paul needs. To be honest, we have a lot more than food and clothing, don't we? Actually, we've got pretty good food and pretty good clothing and lots of other stuff as well. But why not? If we, yeah, expect people who are ministers to do that, I was thinking, well, shouldn't all Christians do that? Uh, there's a thing uh, floating around uh, back in Australia where. Uh, People who are thinking about full-time ministry say, oh, well, maybe I won't do full-time ministry, because after all, we're all full-time Christians, aren't we? We should all be full-time Christians, and therefore I don't have to do full-time ministry. I don't quite see the logic of that, but anyway, they're full-time Christians. Well, if that's the case, then why not take on the salary, the stipend of a full-time ministry person and give the rest away? How much do you need? And maybe we need more than what the average pastor gets. I'm told that uh, in Malaysia, um, even the average pastor cannot live on a stipend. Uh, Sometimes it's true in Australia as well, amongst the Asian churches, that um, they're not really given enough and they really have to have family backing in order to do it. But be that as it may, uh, how much do you actually need? How much do you actually earn? Well, here's where we need to beware. The earner needs to beware. We need to beware of the fact that often our wants become our needs. Our necessities become our needs. It is very easy, isn't it? We get used to a certain standard of of living. I'm a part of a, a school council back in Australia. <coughs> One of the things I have to do is that um, sometimes uh, the, the, the people uh, cannot pay their, their school fees, it's sort of a medium kind of uh, private school. And, um, and so this person came up and said, oh, you know, I don't think I can pay this fees for my daughter uh, this year. Um, I think it's about ten, 000, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 Australian, which is you know, a lot by Malaysian terms, but in Australia. that for him, he was a lot of money okay then, well, let's see if you really can't pay. So we got his uh, financial records and things like that. And he had as, as assets $3 million including 170000 in his cars. And he said, I, ha- I can't afford the fees of paying 20000 for his daughter. Now, true, you know, his business was not going well that year. But what he was really saying without saying it was I actually can't got my living standard, you know, and it—it's so easy, isn't it? We think we can't survive lower than what we have. In fact, it's interesting. The more we earn, we still think we cannot survive. We still think that we need more and more. And so people work, uh, you know, hours that are, you know. Nine to five, um, more than nine to five, nine to ten. Um, there were enormous hours just to keep up, just to survive. Not only the hours per day, but the uh, hours per week and the <coughs> number of weeks away that they have to be in order to keep the job. And people say it's for the sake of, of the future. I've been reading this book called Affluenza. Uh, It's written uh, for the Australian scene, this particular one. And it's interesting, um, he has a situation uh, that he calls the Deferred Happiness Syndrome. Deferred Happiness Syndrome. I'll just read a paragraph for you. Affluenza is a form of self-deception. It comes about as a result of the stories we tell ourselves. One of the stories Australians tell themselves could be called Deferred Happiness Syndrome. A large number of people persist with life situations that are difficult, stressful and exhausting in the belief that the sacrifice will pay off in the longer term. Various discussion groups reveal that the sacrifices many people identify are about relationships with family and friends, and they believe that they are foregoing activities they wouldn't make their lives fulfilling, things that they always wanted to do. So they're sacrificing family relationships, family time, they're sacrificing things now. they would like to do, but they won't do those things now, because they want to work really hard now for the future ahead. Some endure many years of stress, sometimes resulting in ill health, in order to pursue the long-term dream of a happy retirement. I had a friend whose um, father died in his fifties of a heart attack. worked very hard this man. My friend uh, in the eulogy said one of the really sad things was he was cleaning up the stuff in the home after his father had passed on and he found a whole drawer of all these
1: Video tapes
0: of all the good TV programs that his father wanted to watch but never had the opportunity to watch. But he'd he them all, whole drawer of it, so that when he retires, he can watch them all. But he died too soon for that. People defer things for the future. The friends sometimes the future is not going to come. Uh, I, as a father of teenagers, uh, I know that when they become teenagers, they actually don't want to talk to you too much. Yeah, they don't want to see you, they want to hang out with their friends more, you know. It is easy at this stage of life when the children are young, that's when your career is up and going and it's easy to put lots of energy and time and and you, you sort of try to convince yourself I'm I'm building a future for the kids. But by then the kids are gone. In Australia, a lot of the um, the migrants, what they do is they they build these great big mansions, you know, five six bedrooms and things like that. But by the time they finish building that house, the kids have left home, they got married, and they go. Now is the opportunity. You don't sacrifice relationship now for the sake of the future, which may never come. And in the end. What is actually the best for the children? What is the I mean, we all watch what is best uh, for our children, but what is it? I was in a conference like this in Hong Kong a couple of years ago, and uh, some of the graduates uh, were discussing, yeah, in Hong Kong, you know, it's high cost of living, and, and you know, you've got to get the kids uh, tuition and toys and this and that. And as they were discussing about all this, my kids were sort of down the back playing and sort of listening on, and... Uh, my girls were only about, I think, five or six at that stage, and they heard how, you know, these adults were saying, oh, you've got to get all this for our kids and the toys, and the and one and of my daughters whispered to my, my wife, saying, we don't want toys, we want time. It's so true, is it? Children, in the end, do not want toys, they want our time. And no amount of toys is going to make up of the time we could have spent. Beware of how much we think we need to earn. Well then, let's uh, go to point three then. Given that we have this uh, challenge of stipend, you know, why not just live on what you need, because we expect you know, the full-time people to live on what they need. Given that we have a certain income. How are we to spend it? What is the responsible way of spending it? Well, very quickly, then one Thessalonians chapter four again. Uh, we are to uh, make sure we are not dependent on other people. One Timothy chapter five. There we're to look after, especially our immediate family, and so providing for them in terms of uh, food, housing, um, some safety, some uh, they're looking after them. In terms of their medical expenses, I guess it's fairly basic, isn't it? For many of us as Asians in an Asian country, education is a big thing, isn't it? It's worth asking, what education is the most important education for our children? I realise it's hard in Malaysia, right, because if you're not Malay, then you don't get as much opportunity to send your children to the government uh, universities, and uh, the other ones cost more, if you're going to send your kids overseas to study, that's going to cost more, uh, I understand that, and I know that it's slightly different in Australia, but Australians are becoming much the same, um, all the Asians in Australia are all giving their kids tuition, uh, Education's has become a bigger, bigger thing, actually the Chinese are wrecking the Australian education system. Um, <laughs> um our daughter, when they were in uh, primary school, primary five, they invited an Indonesian girl over for their birthday party on Saturday. And the Indonesian girl, at grade five, primary school, said she cannot come on Saturday because she had about six hours of tuition that day. Right? Australia's become just like Asia, really. But uh, this made me think, as a father, well, what kind of education do I really want for them? When I look at the Bible, the education the Bible says we should give our children is the fear and nurture of the Lord, isn't it? That is the key thing. Whether or not our children end up in universities, in the end it doesn't matter. In the end what matters is how they relate to God, how they relate to other people, how they are loving and concerning, how they, you know, what kind of person they are, not the degree they have. Even in terms of getting a job, it's not just your degree, is it? It's how you get on with with people and and your teamwork and things like that. There's a lot more to life than your degree or what job you can get. But we're responsible, and so it's worth asking, uh, where are we going to put our priorities in terms of our children and their responsibilities? I want to be chapter 5 says that we are responsible for our parents and grandparents as well. I want to be 5, 17 to 18 there. Um, that, that that's true. But again, as I said yesterday, it just means that you need to look after them. You know, make sure they're not starving in the street. Uh, make sure that of whatever means you have, you share it with them so that uh, they are looked after. Now, if you only can have pork, tassil and rice, well, make sure you share that tassil and rice with your parents if they have nothing. Uh, it's not saying that you actually keep up their lifestyle, actually improve their lifestyle. It's about the basic needs here. So one of my friends in Singapore, he was an engineer and gave a certain percentage to his parents. Then he decided to do full-time ministry. And he said, I'll still give a certain percentage to you, mum and dad. Just the percentage of what I have is going to be smaller. Um, But he's still honouring his parents, still seeking, and and as far as I know, he's able to look after his parents. Now, if you think, oh, well, that's very hard, isn't it? If if I live on a pastor's uh, stipend, then how can I look after my parents? Then maybe what we need to do is to increase the pastor's stipend, isn't it? Now the next two passages, um, uh, 1 Timothy 5:17 to 18, speaks about looking after those who preach the gospel, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grains. Interesting how fast are compared to cows. Um, the, the, the worker deserves his wages." In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 there, Paul says, "We who work in the gospel have a right to receive a living from the gospel." Uh, That is, uh, we are not monks, we're not begging, it's it's a real real task we do. We give you spiritual food and so there's a right to expect a material harvest back. 1 Corinthians 9 verse 11 there. Now I'm giving this talk to you because it's easy for me to give this talk to you because you're not my congregation. Andrew cannot give this talk to you because he's your pastor. And as Asian pastors you cannot say anything about money. Right. Once you say anything about money, you're not spiritual. Okay. <laughs> and so you've got to keep Andrew nice and poor and thin. alright? That, that's the idea. <laughs> now. <laughs> now, let me take you to uh, my, my. Let me take you to my old church. My old church back in uh, Australia. Uh, Chinese church. It was interesting. Even amongst the elders, uh, only two of the elders knew how much the pastor was getting paid. And then one of my friends uh, became a deacon and so he sort of found out how much the the pastor was being paid. Uh, Not me, right? The the other pastor, I was just a kid in that church. And and then he he was surprised how much, you know, it was, I think it was something like uh, $30,000 a year, right? And that's sort of including everything, you know, housing and everything. And this uh, pastor... Had you know, three kids and all that sort of stuff. So, my friend uh, went around to all the other elders and said, Did you know that we actually pay our pastor you know, this much? And all of them were horrified. And they never, you know, the pastor never complained, so they thought it was alright, you see. And so, they were horrified. So, my friend went around and said, Look, you got three kids, you're going to live on this amount. Oh, no, 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 do that, do that. And so, he went around and within a week, uh, he got all the pastors of that church a six thousand dollar raise. Maybe we are, uh, you know, need to actually provide a bit better. But the point I want to make is, we are actually responsible uh, for our church where we actually receive the teaching that we get. You know, the challenge to actually live on a pastor's stipend, hmm, well, maybe, yes, maybe if we raise the stipend, it would be a bit easier. Well, what about, what about needs? Okay, we cover our needs. What about luxuries? Now, should we have luxuries? I i think digged around in the Bible a little bit for this, and I've come to the conclusion that it's not wrong to have luxuries, especially when you think about what the Bible defines as needs is, you know, food and clothing. Um it's not wrong to enjoy things in the Bible. Okay? Remember the verse yesterday, God created wine to gladden the heart of man. Uh, in Genesis chapter two, when in the Garden of Eden, that the food was only, not only good to eat, it was actually pleasing to the eyes. you see? In 1 Timothy chapter four, the first few verses, uh, it says that people who teach that uh, you should abstain from certain foods to be more holy. It's actually a teaching of the devil. There's nothing wrong with enjoyment of things. And so, um, Proverbs 21.20 here. In the house of the wise, under spending luxuries, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil. Choice food. That's interesting, isn't it? 1 Timothy chapter 6. Command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. That's interesting, isn't that? Everything that we have, even maybe some of the luxuries, little luxuries we have, God gives to us for our enjoyment. Nothing while we're enjoying. Or Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, um, I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. But what he means by that is, whether he's in need or in plenty, he knows how to be content in either uh, situation, whether well-fed or hungry, living in plenty or, or in want. Right? So there were times in the Apostle's life where uh, he had, you know, his needs were satisfied, he had plenty, and he was content with that. Nothing wrong with that per se. However, there are various verses which... Make you wonder about luxuries. And so Haggai chapter 1 verse 4, uh, the people had built nice panelled houses, really luxurious houses for themselves, while the temple at that stage in the Old Testament remained a ruin. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is a challenge to people, isn't it? For people will be lovers of themselves and of money and of pleasure, rather than of God. Again and again, money, pleasure, self is given as an alternative to God. James chapter 5, I love this one. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. It's speaking to Christians who, you know, just, just lapping it up in this world. It says, you are like a peeking duck. You know? <laughs> You're sitting in this cage and you think, oh, life is good. I don't have to be like those chickens running around trying to find food. I just sit in this cage and they feed me so much. And you're fattening yourself because you know what happens on the day of slaughter. They get the fattest duck first. are going to beware of luxury. The apostle Paul, you know, live in plenty, yes, but... When you think of what Paul actually thought about what is plenty, he thinks that having food and clothing is plenty. So we've got to be careful in terms of luxuries. And so as buyers, we've got to beware, don't we? This is one verse I want to draw your attention to on this point. Luke chapter 8 and verse 14. Again, it's the parable of the free soils, isn't it? Luke's one is slightly different from uh, Matthew and Mark in that you notice what is choked by the thorns is not so much the word of God, which is in the other versions, uh, Matthew and Mark, but in Luke, the people themselves are choked. As they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures, and they do not mature. Notice these are people who hear the Word of God, who hear the Gospel, and yet the worries of life, and the riches, the pleasures, they are the things, isn't it? I've known uh, the person who followed me up as a Christian. Uh, as far as I know, he's drifted away from Christianity altogether. Um, a hotshot lawyer in Hong Kong, and um, uh, far, far away from the from the Christian now he's married a non Christian, then just got wrapped up in his work and a million miles away from Christianity. Women tend to fall away in a few years by marrying non Christian men. Men tend to fall away, Christian men tend to fall away, not in two or three years, but in about ten or fifteen years. Because it actually it's just choking by the by the riches of this world, isn't it? No one decision you make is you know it's sinful, you know, you're not doing anything dishonest or illegal. You just that's you know, just another hour of work, just another project, just another trip, just another and you can always justify it. But in 10, 15 minutes it's a slow drift away from just and these things actually choke people. And it's like the, the rat in the rat race, that's what we call it, isn't it? You're running so fast, and you have to run so fast, and as you gl- yes, you're running so fast, the rat is wearing little Nike shoes, and they've got the, all the iPods on and everything, but it's running so fast, it doesn't stop and look at, at what's happening. You know? You're know, actually going nowhere. You know? And as someone said, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. <laughs> it just chokes you to death. It just... Well then buyer beware. Very quickly, the last two points. Sharing, Ephesians 4, 28, isn't it? Notice, you're not longing to steal, don't take money for yourself, work responsibly, doing something useful with your own hands, and by the work, by all all, I think all work is, is useful, you know. Uh, there's some work that's not useful, that is, uh, you know, being a hitman for the triad, prostitution, <laughs> Um, maybe working in a tobacco company—a you know, few things that actually is not useful for society. And most most things are useful, uh, but notice the reason: not only that you may you know be independent and be able to look after your own family, etc., but so that you have something to share with those in need. And there's a whole series of proverbs about how being generous to those in need is actually great. It's, you're actually giving in the end to God. you it's more blessed to give than to receive. It's Galatians 6 verse 10 even actually gives the priority in our giving, that there's a certain responsibility to God's people. And so especially when you hear of uh, uh, congregation members or Christians around who are in need, we have a responsibility to them as, as the Christian family but let us do good to all people, especially the household of God, as you have opportunity, as you see it. Now, you've got to be careful, isn't it? You don't, you know, drive along, everyone who knocks on the window of your car, you know, you, you give them money, uh, you're walking down the street, who ask for money, you know, you don't necessarily take out your wallet, and then they snatch your whole wallet, and you know, you've got to be careful how you do it, and it's actually maybe good to, to plan your giving, to actually work out, where can I give, which organisation I can give it to, so they don't waste it all on administration, and the money I give actually goes to whoever is in need. But we are people who have, it's a great challenge for me, we people who have so much, we need to share with those in need. Saving. I you were going fast. Nothing wrong to save for a rainy day. So Proverbs 21.20, there are stores of choice food in the house of the wise. Versus the foolish who just eats all he has straight away. A certain wisdom in, in actually not going after instant gratification, to actually store for the future, even for our children, Proverbs 14 there. The one who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. How are you going to balance against other verses in the Bible? So Matthew 6 Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow not worry about itself. Each day has enough worry. Trouble of its own. There's, there's sometimes when we actually uh, worry about so many potential things that could happen, that can go wrong, isn't it? That they may never eventuate. And sometimes people can get overly uh, worried about everything, you know, have so many back doors and so many. Uh, and they hold onto things just in case, just in case. And there's no guarantee, Luke chapter 12 in Jesus parable. I told you only half of it yesterday. Remember the, the person who says, oh, isn't it good? i build built big barns, a good crop. I've got everything stored up for the future. Everything's cool. I can sit back, relax, take life easy, drink and be merry. But God says, verse 20, you fool. This very night, your life is demanded from you. This is how it would be for anyone who stores up for himself. But it's not rich towards God. So nothing wrong with uh, um, saving for a rainy day uh, within reason. And nothing wrong with uh, insurance. Oh, I've got car insurance. I've got house insurance. Um, I got uh, life insurance, right? So that you know, if I die, then you know, my wife doesn't have to go back to full-time work. Insurance, nothing wrong with insurance. In fact, if you're able to afford a insurance, it's actually part of uh, not. Being too dependent on others, isn't it? Because if I don't have insurance and you know everything goes wrong, then it's my Christian friends and yeah you know, they'll have to somehow chip in, isn't it? So if I can't afford it, you know insurance is good. But not everyone can afford insurance, and sometimes we are actually uh, too overprotected, isn't it? And if if our insurance premiums are too high, uh, maybe we have too much content to insure. What about saving? Not only for a rainy day, but saving friends for eternity. And this is a very strange little parable here. Luke chapter 16. You remember the parable? There was a rich man whose manager accused him of wasting his possessions. So he called him to account and Says, I hear you about you, give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager anymore. He's going to get the sack. And the manager said and said, oh, what should I do? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil. The manager told him, take your bill and write down uh, quickly uh, make it 400, so he's just halved how much uh, the people owe him, you see. a similar one to the, to the second uh, person, verse 7. Right, so what he's done is uh, actually got the money back for his master, well, at least 50% of it, but at the same time given a 50% discount to those who owed the money to his master. Verse 8, the master, when he found out, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly, uh, or another word, or, or wisely. It's a strange parable, because you think, what's God trying to tell us? know, doesn't mean it's good to be dishonest, right? No, no, no. Dishonesty is just just by the way in the parable. Usually there's only one point in in a parable. What's the point? What is this one point in the parable? Jesus explains it for you. For the people of this world, uh, the non-Christian world in general, are more wise, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of life, than the Christians. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What is it about? What he's saying is, look at how you know, the non-Christian community, how they spend their money, how they make wise decisions, a lot of them, in terms of this world, and they do trade like this so that, you know, they prepare for the future. You, as God's people, make sure you use worldly wealth, that is money in this world, money that's going to be gone in the end, but use it now, put investment in it now, so that when heaven comes, people will welcome you into eternal dwellings. Not just God welcoming you, I don't think, because the parallel in verse 4 is that other people, the people that you had done this wise transaction with will actually welcome you. I think it is talking about putting finances now so that we actually can welcome people, or that they can welcome us into heaven. I think it's about putting money into gospel ministry so that people actually become Christians and grow as Christians, and that through that they actually will be in heaven, and they will thank us for how we have used our resources now so as to bring eternity to them. This is more than just giving to the church, which is feeding you spiritual food. That's just the responsibility. This is more than that. This is uh, gospel generosity. This is promoting the gospel message. This is using our resources now for the sake of, not just the future, of, of eternity itself. So at our church, uh, we have uh, many of the graduates from Focus, uh, who in the end, uh, now when they're students, they can't give too much, but when they start being workers, they they actually, many of them give back uh, to our ministry, the student church and things like that, as the graduates. They're the ones who keep on supporting the ministry. And it's great because they can see that, hey, this actually They've been helped along the way and so they want to help the next generation of students. And it's got to do with giving to mission, isn't it? Uh, giving uh, to the work of the Gospel beyond ourselves. Well then, let's draw things to a close. We looked at income, how we get this liquid power, our stipend. We looked at spending, we looked at how much we should uh, earn. Look, luxuries, sharing, saving. Well, how are we to conclude? We need to be people who have an attitude in terms of riches. You know, when you say, oh, that person's got a bit of an attitude, you mean that he's somehow, you know, a little bit anti-establishment, you know, a little bit got a, you know, a bit of a oomph for something, a little bit. Um, he's got an attitude, this person. That is, he's got a conviction, he, he believes in something. He's not just going to go along with the crowd, he's not just going to drift with the crowd. We need as Christians to have an attitude in our riches. There's we are the people who see that big picture. Life here is only a short time, it's heaven that is eternity. You live for 90 years. Let's say we give you 90 years. What is 90... You mathematicians tell me, right? What is 90 over infinity? Very little, isn't it? (laughs) What are you going to (laughs) do? What's the next step in your life? You know, those of you who are studying or past exams. you Got your degree? Get a good job. You Got a good job? Get a promotion. You got a promotion? Well, get a... Good career, get a good career, well, find a good house, then the car, and then the wife, and then, you need the car for the wife, because they like the car, and then, um, and then what? Well, then, uh, we have children, right? And then what? And then, well, I guess they have to, I've got to make sure the children go through all these things as well, isn't it? It's just repeating the cycle. And then what? And then, and then we die. That, that's, that's in the end the, the answer in terms of this life. That's why people go for that picture of all the five cars, that's all they got to live for. It's only this life. As Christians we see beyond that. We actually go to heaven to be with God, that inheritance. What are we going to do with these 70 years of our life? How are we going to use the money that God has given us? We've got to be people who have an attitude who know where we're going, and therefore we can live in the light of it. I know people, I met a man when I was studying theology in the States for a year, this American, crazy American, this American, in order to study Bible College, he and his wife sold their house They have enough money to go through Bible College. That's pretty hard to do, isn't it? I know another person, uh, one of our graduates have gone back to Hong Kong, she was a, an architect. But got married, and when she had the baby, she really said, oh, I want to spend time with, with the kids, and so she gradually quit her architect job. It was hard to quit because the, the boss really didn't want her to quit, so she quit. But in order to quit... Uh, That job, they had to actually downsize their house. They're actually in a good place uh, in Hong Kong, right on top of the railway station. You think you don't want to live near a railway station, but in Hong Kong they do, right? They're all about convenience. They're right above the railway station, nice apartment. But because she didn't want to keep doing her architect job, they actually sold that place and bought a smaller place. Her parents said, "No, no, 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 don't do that. We'll come look after the kid, we'll do this for you. I, said, no, I think you know, from the Bible we see more of it tomorrow. You know, as a mother, I, I should be looking after my own children, etc. And then I found out last year that this child uh, has turned out to be autistic. Now, that's a very hard thing. But so when she was talking to me, she was so positive. I sort of wondered why. And she said, Well, I've been taking my child to these uh, different um, you know, health things to see how to best help the autistic children. And it's interesting, over the last few months I've met uh, lots of other women who also have autistic children, and most of them are not Christian, and most of them are all distressed and distraught, and their whole life is, you know, in a turmoil, and she said, it's really good actually that I've now got this opportunity to meet up with these uh, women, and tomorrow, she says, it will be our first time we actually get together and, and do a Bible study. That is Even in such difficult circumstances, she sees that there's an opportunity to make friends or the gospel. Friends, we are people who have to have an attitude to riches. It is very easy to ask the question, you know, how how much is how? What is a need and what is a want? You know, where do you draw the line between a need and a want? Uh, How much should I have? You know. how do, how, are you Just tell me, you know, where is enough for me to earn, and above that line then it's sinful, and below that line it's okay, and we, we, we as people, we want to draw lines like that. It's like, you know, back in the old days when you're a teenager and going out with someone, you say, you know, how far should you go, uh, not in terms of distance, but in terms of, um, uh, you know, physical touching, kissing, that, that kind of stuff, but the very... In fact, you want to draw a line and say, how far can we go? That's the Pharisees' question, isn't it? And the problem with the Pharisees is they gave answers to everyone, and this is the line, and where they put the line really was so that they can sin as much as they like and still feel okay. Friends, we are people who have an attitude, a heart in terms of our riches, a heart that's shaped by where we see our whole life is going. We are not about drawing lines, we are about having an attitude for God shaped by the Gospel. Our Heavenly Father we do thank you that you bless us with so much, even in terms of uh, the stuff of this world, for so many people in our world if they see us today, they would wish I I could be like that. Father, we are so blessed materially. We thank you for the opportunities you've given us, for the families you've given us, for the abilities you've given us, for the education you've given us, for the work, for the money that is in our disposal. Yet, Father, it is so easy For us, we have so much to actually depend on that stuff, rather than depend on you, the giver of all that riches. Father, for us, it's not poverty that is our danger, but riches that is our danger. So often if you did make us poor, we might actually depend on you more, but as we live in our riches, it is so easy to forget you. Father remind us, not just of the riches that we have in this life, but of the great riches of forgiveness, of being your children, of the inheritance we will inherit. When Jesus returns, please, Father, lift our eyes beyond this world, beyond having those five cars and the boat and the mansion, and help us to see where we go, the city that is to come, and help us to know how to use your riches in this life so that we can be responsible so that we can share with others, so that we can give to the work of the gospel, so that we can actually make our life count in terms of the relationships we have and in terms of the relationships we can make for the sake of eternity.